0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: So I know you guys don't watch Homeland. Which is probably for the best. I've never seen it. Um, you're not missing much. But <laughs> so this week, I watch it all the time just because I'm a glutton for punishment. But this week, um, Carrie Matheson, the lead character who is out of a job because, let me get this straight, I think she was going to work for the president-elect who was nearly assassinated by the deep state, but now she's on the outs with the president-elect. Anyway, Carrie needs a job so she can move out of her sister's this house. This is like
0: General Hospital, but it's for like the CIA? It's like
1: Hospital, yeah, for the CIA, Okay, basically. got like, it. Remember when I said, like, Faldo was like, homeland oh, in Israel, but good? <laughs> so, anyway, she's moving out of the house. Says, Don't worry. I have a job lined up. I have an interview this afternoon at Brookings. So- and,
2: and then Brookings turns around and tweets Dear Carrie, we notice you seem to have missed your interview. Please give us a call. That's so wait,
0: was she interviewing to be the head of security at it's Perkins? It's not
2: clear. And I'm wondering if they're going to go with this
1: plot line because I want to know what's the over-under on the chances that she goes to work for like a Middle East policy expert who also has a renegade podcast. Ooh. Or like, you know, mm. a governance expert who runs a deep state blog. Yes. <laughs> I think the two of you are going to be characters in Homeland.
0: I do have an opening for research assistant right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Carrie called Tammy's office.
0: Flight
2: 209,
1: or clear for vector three two four. We have clearance, clearance. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Hello, and welcome to Rational Security. Do the Do we have clearance, clearance Edition.
0: <laughs> What's your vector, Victor? <laughs> What's your vector,
1: Victor? Roger, Roger.
0: <laughs> uh, and all the millennials are going, huh?
1: Huh? <laughs> airplane. Look it up. Go on IMDb. P- IMDb. Pack a lunch. <laughs> Oh. It's one of my favorite lines from a friend of mine who's a comic. I just still <laughs> go on IMDb, Back a lunch. I'm Shane Harris, Valentine's reporter. It's Valentine's Day, you guys.
0: Happy I wanna... on valentines Day to oh, you. Really?
2: I want to recite a national security Valentine's haiku. Oh, please. By Daphna Linzer. Okay. Uh, hold me forever. Never, ever let me go. Get Mo Valentine. Oh.
0: Oh. So, oh, yeah, and God. definitely check out the hashtag NS Natsec Valentine's. Natsec Nat Valentine's, Valentines oh, on you. Twitter. Very, or, very worthy.
1: Sounds like a good thing. I'll do that after we finish. Uh, I'm here with my good friends, Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis. Hi, guys. Hi. You're my Valentine's. Hey, Shane. This is just like the old days. It's just the three of us. I know. It's like we, the pre Susan. I know. Susan is uh, at home with her newest Valentine.
2: With her, with her object
1: lesson. With her object. Lesson. <laughs> <laughs> the objectified baby. <laughs> this child has been given has such a boost in life already. Oh, this week on the podcast, it's it maybe Valentine's Day, but there's not much to love.
0: <laughs> it's I mean, a love-lorn world. Cut that out later. <laughs>
1: Dozens, dozens of White House officials, including Jared Kushner, lack permanent security clearances. Well, no oh love man. from the FBI for those folks. No love from the FBI your background check. Uh, it's been a really bad week for Benjamin Netanyahu. But and not you... for Benjamin Wittes. Oh, but not for Benjamin Wittes. Very good week for Benjamin Wittes, the other Ben. But we don't call you BB, right? No. No, okay. And U.S. intelligence chiefs present their annual lists of threats to national security. Um, let's start with whether we have clearance, Clarence, there are a lot of people in the White House, not named Clarence, but who don't have clearance. Or who have interim clearance. Interim clearance, which is like a, it's a wonderful way of saying like, we're pretty sure you might pass the background check. So we're going to give you this interim clearance. But like, don't look at anything, what, too classified in the meantime. But then, let's let's actually start with this, this question. I mean, you can take this. Because... Many of these people do not have full security clearance, as we reported in the Post, and been some other reporting on this as well, but they do have interim security clearance. So explain, first, Ben, the concept of that, and then let's get to the, the the broader problems that that presents, or the more specific ones in the case of perhaps Jared Kushner.
2: Yeah. So the interim security clearance in the White House anyway, so it's a little different, I think, in, in agencies, but in the White House with senior officials— it arises because you've got to get people in place quickly. People are not interchangeable. And, you know, so the president needs a new White House counsel or a new staff secretary or a new chief of staff. And that person's got to get in place. So you, can, you can't get the whole background investigation done in time to do that in a timely way. But you can do a sort of quick and dirty background check, the, some paperwork, the drug test, the um, kind of initial scan, uh, clear the person on an interim basis while you do this other investigation, which can be lengthy. Now, normally, people at the very senior levels, you prioritize those investigations so that period of time is pretty short um weeks weeks sometimes i mean i think sort of three months is kind of an outside um so the idea that you would have that dragging on for months and months and months will almost entire almost always i think at the senior levels reflects that something has come up in Mm -hmm. the course of that investigation in other words
1: you're not keeping your interim for months and months and
2: months You're not keeping your interim for months and months and months unless there's some reason you haven't gotten uh, your permanent clearance. And so I think, you know, it is kind of mind boggling that Jared Kushner, for example, is on an interim security clearance more than a year after becoming, uh, you know, senior, do everything, run the Middle East peace process, fix China, and, you know, fix everything else for the president. Guy, I don't remember what his title is. Um, senior advisor. And, you know, the staff secretary, that is a very big job. This
1: is Rob Porter's old job. Right. He so had to pe- resign pe- after allegations of domestic abuse surfaced.
2: People think that job is um, – uh, some sort of support job because it has the word secretary as the noun and it's not followed by of blank, which would be a cabinet secretary, right? Um, This is not the person who's taking notes for the president, you know, or taking phone messages, right? It's not a personal secretary. The staff secretary is the person who manages all paper flow to the president. Um, You know, it is a very big job. It's a very important job. And uh, it is held by big, important people. And it is kind of mind boggling that there would be somebody in that position with a long, on a long term basis on an interim clearance uh, that when the disparaging facts are quite as bad as the ones that have now emerged about uh uh, Mr. Porter.
0: So I think it's not only that the staff secretary job is an important one held by important people, but it's also that the nature of the job function is such that the information that's going in and out of the Oval Office onto the president's desk includes some of the most highly sensitive, protected, classified information in the U.S. government, and it's like going, all of it.
2: Well, no, actually, it's it's the president. Like this right, is the, the stuff that the president's making decisions and, on the basis of. And so
0: of. having a fully vetted top-secret compartmentalized information-capable clearance is kind of de rigueur because the material that you're handling is very often at that level. Um, And Bill Antholis has written uh, on Twitter and and also in an op-ed about what the process is for either working around a staff secretary who is not allowed to handle compartmentalized top-secret information or the procedure that would have to be used to grant a staff secretary access to that information, even though they haven't gotten fully cleared for it. Um, Either one of those processes is laborious, would involve John Kelly, the chief of staff, making a written determination and um, reduces the sort of efficiency and streamlining of the White House, which is supposedly what Kelly's big strength has been. And so I think it just it raises a lot of questions about what Kelly was thinking, why he handled this the way he handled it. Um, and it it also, of course, raises a set of questions about who knew what when, about Porter's inability to get that permanent clearance. But I think there is one thing about the clearance process that it's important to understand in evaluating the story, which is, You know, the White House is saying, well, final determinations on these people were never made. It's not like they were going to be denied clearances or they had been denied clearances. We just hadn't finished yet. Um, And a lot of the time, whether you're talking about senior appointments or, you know, entry level people, if um the CIA or the FBI or whoever's doing the background investigation, if they find information that they think will prevent them from granting a clearance rather than deny the clearance, they just hold the process. And often the person in question is given the opportunity either to provide additional information or just to step aside and say, okay, I'm taking myself out of consideration for that job or I'm going to quit on the basis. Because once you get a denial, it's very, very hard ever to get cleared again. And oh, so I people see. don't want a negative determination, and the whole system is structured to avoid a final decision. So for the White House to come out and say, well, we just hadn't made a final decision yet is kind of BS. Well, and it's.
1: it also strikes me that it could be BS. It also could reflect that they don't actually know how the security clearance process perhaps even works. I think Shocker! Yeah, I think it's probably <laughs> a little bit more, it seems disingenuous in so far as, FBI Director Christopher Wray, in his testimony on Tuesday, said a lot about the timeline and made it pretty clear that no, we sent this background investigation after an interim report in March. We sent it to the White House in June, right? And then so several pre- months they did it quickly. later, right? They did it quickly. For this is the one for Rob Porter, right? They did it quickly. Uh, and then several months later, we got asked for more information. So I think, I mean, Tamar, to, to your point, that sounds more like a process that sort of let this thing sit there and then ask some more questions. And we understand the FBI then interviewed him in November about this domestic abuse stuff. But it, along those lines, I mean, we, it, maybe this gets at the it's a question it's impossible to answer right now. But if this is, application is sitting there and there's some, let's presume, derogatory information or information that would prevent the White House from saying, oh, no, go ahead and just issue the clearance, which the president has the authority to do. And these people are working on interim clearances. Isn't it effectively like saying we're giving you a clearance because the report comes back? Rob Porter continues working for another half a year on an interim clearance, quote unquote. But as far as we can tell, there's no meaningful restriction on what he's allowed to do. Well, so I he's doing the job that, that you would have. Well, it seems like he's doing the job you would have done under full clearance. Just nobody wanted to say, give him full clearance. Right. And we're inferring a lot to here. But that to me says that effectively then somebody could have just made the decision to say just – let him continue operating the way that he is without having to make the, the final adjudication. Look, the
2: president of the United States is entitled to give whatever information right. he wants to whomever he wants, including, by the way, the Russian foreign minister. Um, and <laughs> bringing up that again. Well, you know, somebody has to. Right. Um, and. <laughs> You know, once you've disclosed uh, close allies' intelligence programs to an adversary nation in the Oval Office, yeah, what's gi- the big deal about giving a clearance to a wife abuser? Right, he's only he's only like beaten up two wives. I mean, so I I think that like. Like, you have to start with first constitutional principles, which is that the president is entitled to share information with whomever he wants. When the president decides to share information with you, we call that a security clearance. There is a formal process for granting that status, which is what we call the security clearance process. But the other way to do it is for the president to decide to give you information. And he can do that for as long as he wants and the limitation on that is political embarrassment if and when it becomes public because say the daily mail publishes uh the information and i but it, it is not fundamentally a legal problem it's fundamentally a uh, the president gets to do what he wants in this area.
0: You know, I think there's another interesting dimension that's revealed by this whole controversy, which is the the subjectivity of the standard for getting a clearance. Um, I mean, it, it, it looks at character. It looks at trustworthiness. And this is yet another arena where, yes, there's law, there's regulation, there's policy, but there's basically a sort of normative set of standards that up until now, um, were agreed upon and widely adhered to. Uh, And that set of standards included the idea that if you beat your wives, um, even if it was a matter of public record, because there was a restraining order against you, and therefore you're not necessarily vulnerable to blackmail on the basis of this, it says something about your character, which suggests that maybe you shouldn't have a position of trust and confidence um, in the US government. Uh, and that norm has been attacked by the way this White House, this president, this White House chief of staff have chosen to deal with Rob Porter specifically and with the issue of clearances in general. So, you know, that we have to trust, we have been used to trusting the process that enables us to trust the people. And by screwing up the process or messing with the process in the way that they've done, um, I think they've made it harder for us, the American public, to trust all the people, whether they have full clearances or not.
1: Yeah. It also just strikes me, just to kind of put a last note on this, that <clears throat> if, as we've reported, dozens of officials in the White House are working on interim clearances, it's, it's not a backlog. There's been some kind of affirmative decision to...
2: Or they all have problems. Well, I was going say, yeah.
1: affirmative decision to dis- or perhaps disregard information that was found in their background Well, checks. so,
2: so I, I think you got to distinguish between two groups of people here. So one is people who are low down on the totem pole enough that they will always be deprioritized. And...
0: And they're you just know, in limbo because their background. They're
2: just not in done. limbo because they're not actually in very sensitive positions. They're not senior level people, and so in those circumstances, it can take forever. And I wouldn't, you know, I don't. But then there are the people who are bo- above a certain level who would be prioritized, um, and who would, under normal circumstances, you'd expect this to get done in eight, ten weeks, three months at the out outer end those people if you know if however many of those dozens of people are senior level people you have to assume that something has come back very disparaging that can't be resolved and then you have to ask the question why the hell are they still in their positions
0: right and and so the question for john kelly now you know aside from the question of his personal credibility the question is does he move people into other jobs that don't require a clearance? Does he ask those people to leave because they cannot get a permanent clearance? Or does he allow this limbo to exist forever, which has this broader degradation of the standard?
1: It also depends on um, how much longer John Kelly, I suppose, is there.
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: I don't know. John Kelly Death Watch edition.
0: We'll we'll see.
2: I thought not it was yet. the Bibi Netanyahu Death Watch edition. Speaking seamless of transition. Totally
0: seamless. not there yet.
2: So, by the way, the Sessions Death Watch edition was a long time ago, and <laughs> yeah. that guy has like the, you know been the Walking Dead for a really long time. I mean,
1: now. you know, it's like apparently our predictions don't really carry much weight, you guys. Um,
2: Why are you even listening to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> we suck. We, we can't even. We can't even predict the demise of an attorney general.
1: John Kelly is totally fine. By this time next week, he'll resign. <laughs> um, so yes, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Um, boy, police came back with a recommendation that he be charged, uh, stemming from a corruption. And bribery investigation? Not
0: not one investigation. Not one,
1: two. Case one <laughs> was it one thousand and two thousand? Is there no? Yes. And that wasn't even like the only bad thing that happened um, to Israel's leader tomorrow. Tell us about
2: <laughs> Bibi's bad week. Every bad week, Yeah, we
1: bad?
0: Yeah, it's it has been a tough week for for Netanyahu. So over the weekend, uh, Israel had. Uh, Its most significant confrontation so far um, on its northern border with Syria. Uh, uh, Iranian forces reportedly sent a drone into Israeli airspace, an Israeli helicopter gunship shot it down. Uh, The Israeli Air Force then retaliated, bombing sites deep into Syria that were affiliated with uh, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps And uh, one of the Israeli fighter jets was hit by Syrian air defense and went down, uh, but made it back into Israeli airspace before it went down. So that was not scary at all because it's not like, you know, you can't imagine what might have happened if that jet had gone down in Syria with two pilots aboard instead of in Israel. Um, And then on top of that, uh, Netanyahu, in his weekly meeting with the cab- with his cabinet, was trying to push back on efforts by the right part right wing elements of his coalition to uh, push forward a law and applying Israeli law in, in effect annexing some of Israel's settlements in the West Bank. And he pushed back by saying, "Hey, come on, guys, I've been discussing this with the United States for a long time, and just you know, give me some time." And the White House immediately responded by furiously denying that Netanyahu had ever discussed this with them. And so the um, the previously applied rule between Trump and Netanyahu of no daylight and no surprises ended up with a, a surprise from Netanyahu to Trump and a lot of daylight opened up by, by Trump with Netanyahu. Um so on top of those, the, the police indictments were kind of the icing on the cake
1: <laughs> or the cherry on the sundae. Or... And, and, and the police indictments, I mean, let's – what so what is the just, next – Just to
2: be clear, the police in Israel don't indict. Not indictment right. indictments. Recommendations. So, they so, have
0: recommended indictments. So in this
2: is cases. a step that does not exist in the American legal system, and it's actually worth disaggregating. Yeah, please. So – in Israel, the police in these in these public corruption cases make a recommendation, but then the actual decision as to whether to pursue charges is made by the attorney general. And but the recommendation, unlike in the United States, is a public act, um, and so there's a. Um, Then, an interregnum period in which the police have made this recommendation, but the legal system has not decided whether to act on it. And in two previous instances, one when he was prime minister and one when he was opposition leader, the police have recommended that BB be prosecuted, and the attorney general has declined. So, the question is whether this is third time's a charm Mm, or whether BB is sort of, you know, the BB magic of, of uh, slipping through the police's fingertips uh, happens again. So
1: what is the, the – I mean, w- w- or what is the thinking anyway on whether this time the attorney general actually goes forward and prosecutes him?
0: Right. So I think that um, there's obviously, you know, how strong are the evidentiary grounds in these two cases? And then there's the political calculus. And I I think actually the attorney general is probably going to have to weigh both of those. So there are Uh, Two separate cases that have led to these recommendations to indict. There are two other corruption investigations involving Netanyahu that are still ongoing and may produce recommendations down the line.
2: And there were trouble charges against his wife.
0: Uh, Yes. So the first case involves basically gifts of cigars and uh, pink champagne. No kidding. Um, in large quantities, amounting to a million shekels worth of cigars and pink champagne, concert tickets, hotel rooms, etc. What was that in dollars? Uh, so two
2: hundred fifty thousand. Right? No,
0: a little more. Yeah, about three hundred thousand dollars, I guess. Um, so not a huge amount of money, but not peanuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a lot as, of cigars. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a lot of pink champagne. It's a lot of pink champagne. Maybe um, he just
1: really likes Eagles music.
0: And the gifts so themselves are not in and out, are not necessarily illegal. So the evidence is around whether Bibi gave political favors to these billionaires, these two billionaires, in exchange for the gifts. Right. Um, and one interesting element here is that uh, Yair Lapid, who heads the opposition party that is right now polling highest uh, amongst the opposition, uh, was in Netanyahu's earlier government and gave testimony to the police against Netanyahu, uh, alleging that uh, a law was advanced mm-hmm. to favor these billionaires in exchange for the gifts. Um, the other corruption case uh, involves a sort of another favor trading, which is that Netanyahu uh, was uh, recorded on tape discussing with a newspaper publisher, the publisher of Yediot Ahronot. Uh, the possibility that Yediot would give Bibi more favorable coverage and Bibi in exchange would constrain the expansion of a rival newspaper so that Yediot would get bigger circulation. Um, so both of those now are With the prosecutor's office, there's actually an adversarial process where Netanyahu's lawyers get to go make an argument to the attorney general's team about why these charges don't hold water or make other arguments against them. And then the attorney general has to make a decision. Here's the political calculation. No one in Netanyahu's coalition uh, is willing right now to take their chances on elections Hmm. Um, netanyahu still and all believe it or not polls highest as a prime ministerial candidate amongst the public and likud is still doing well in the polls now that the police recommendation has been made and details of the investigatory findings are coming out in the press all these guys in Likud and in the other coalition parties are watching the polls and they're going to see if Likud's numbers start to drop or if the numbers of other right-wing parties start to drop, then they might want to not wait and go ahead and have elections before their position gets worse. Um, and for the opposition as well, they might prefer to wait right now and see if their if uh, po- political position improves over time. So I think BB actually has... Time to make his argument to the public that this is a political witch hunt. To have his lawyers make the argument to it's the attorney hoax. general, it's a hoax. It's fake news, um, and he may yet he may yet pull a rabbit out of the hat here and survive.
1: And it seems to me like if he's if he's enjoying the support that he still is. I mean, it, is it the case that the Israeli public has looked at these accusations and thinks that they are politically trumped up, or are they keeping an open mind, or are they perhaps just not shocked
2: by them?
0: Well, so the first thing to understand is that Israeli uh, laws on corruption of public officials are actually pretty strict um, relative to standards in a lot of Western democracies. And so um, there have been a number of Israeli officials uh, indicted and convicted and a former prime minister who resigned and went to jail on corruption charges in the past. And so On the one hand, um, Israelis are dismayed at what they see as kind of corruption being rife in their political system. On the other hand, they're a little bit inured to this, like, oh, another one. Yeah, they're all dirty, right? And so it kind of reduces the impact. Um, At the same time, Netanyahu, who's been very successful at wielding kind of populist themes politically, has really worked hard over the last week's anticipating these recommendations to make the case publicly that the police are out to get him, that it's a political witch hunt, that his enemies like Yair Lapid, who testified against him, are just using this to get him through the legal system because they can't beat him at the ballot box. And that seems to have some resonance, at least with his party base.
1: All right. Speaking of parties, no, that's not a transition at all. That just didn't work. Oh, Shane. <laughs> you're,
0: you're off your transitional game today. Oh, I, just,
1: I was like, Benjamin Netanyahu, global threats hearing in the Senate Intelligence Committee. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to make the leap. But the global threats <laughs> hearing <laughs> was in the Senate Intelligence Committee, you guys. Uh, <clears throat> a number of... Um, well, really, I think it's the directors of the major uh, intelligence agencies and the FBI, which is sort of a hybrid, uh, testifying at the annual hearing from the Senate Intelligence Community- Committee. Um, the House has not scheduled it's yet. I'm not sure the House has a schedule right now on the House Intelligence Committee. Can, uh, can they schedule so anything? anything? I'm not sure. Can
0: they schedule a bathroom break Can over they there?
1: unmask their schedule? <laughs> um, and I think one of the big takeaways was um, – the all of the Intel Chiefs that were there are now on record uh, as saying that there is indications, there are indications that Russia is preparing for meddling in the 2018 midterm elections uh, within the same spectrum of activities that we saw conducted in 2016. So they're saying essentially yes, we think they're up to it again, and it's going to happen again. And uh, there has been no affirmative direction from the president himself to do anything to prepare for that, to try and deter or repel that activity, even though some of the intelligence agency directors said, well, we're doing some things on our own, uh, but we can't talk about them in open session. Um, But safe to say there is no administration policy or whole of government approach um, uh, to countering what Every intelligence agency director that was there says is going to be a repeat of 2016. Um, So, Ben, um, WTF?
2: Yeah. So I think the broad theme here about both this issue and the security clearance issue at the White House emanating from yesterday's hearing is that the FBI and the intelligence community are much more concerned about these things than the White House is. And, you know, the president, um, according to CNN today, has recently, uh, recently been expressing once again doubts that Russia really interfered in the 2016 election and, and considers it uh, any suggestion that they did to be the suggestion that he didn't win on his own but needed help externally to win. And against that environment, I think it's probably not, it's probably too much to expect the White House to be, you know, actively engaged in what would amount to a, okay, we believe you didn't do it, but never do it again. But, we're, you know, a policy. Uh, and so I think the poor heads of the intelligence agencies, which of who, of course, uh, have to run... Uh, You know, protect U.S. national security in the context of that, have this delicate line to walk, which is to take appropriate steps to protect the electoral process in 2018, a matter on which they have, for reasons we can talk about, limited authority and capacity to begin with, um, and to do it in a way that doesn't uh, offend the president by suggesting that. Uh, they believe there is anything deficient about the circumstances of his election, which mm. is actually a difficult set of lines to walk. Yeah. And I kind of feel for them. Uh, on the other hand, you know, that is what you signed up for when you agreed to be his uh, FBI director or CIA director, you know, or or DNI. And, and so I, I think there's... You know, they're lying in the bed they helped make, um, and it's uncomfortable.
0: So it seems to me that it was a, an interesting, and I think it must have been a deliberate decision by this group of IC chiefs, knowing that they were coming up to do this annual briefing to foreground this issue mm-hmm. and to, to do it in public together Perhaps as a way of deflecting wrath from the president toward any single one of them. But also, you know, what are they lacking? They're lacking a demand signal from the White House to respond to in building up their efforts here. And so they're trying to create a demand signal in Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, they're saying, you know, look, the White House isn't asking us to do this stuff. Maybe you could, <laughs> you know? Um, And I find that a really, really interesting um, manifestation of all the dynamics Ben was talking about, but also an interesting choice uh, that acting collectively, these IC chiefs are requesting Congress to step in um, and play a more active role and get them to do things that they wish their boss would ask them to do. And also that they're they're doing they're also trying to create public demand. They're trying to create demand among secretaries of state of the various states who are responsible for running these elections. And if we think about what happened in 2016, when the Obama administration, you know, came to the conclusion that this was going on, went to Congress and tried to get the leadership of Congress to agree to make a joint public statement about this and, you know, get the states on board. With countermeasures, and McConnell refused. Right, the politics interfered, and it seems to me that the IC chiefs here are trying hard to avoid a repeat, Um, and they are also defying their president to a degree in doing so. And I find both those things really interesting. I don't know if it'll work.
1: Well, it's also worth pointing out, and Ben, I mean, you alluded to this, and tomorrow you're implicitly pointing to it too. You know, it's not like the CIA, for instance, can just go undertake a lot of new measures against Russia, uh, like to deter it or uh, to try you know, maybe hack their infrastructure or send that a message. I mean, absent a direction or a finding from the president. I mean, there are well, things the president has is, to specifically authorize. Right.
0: How much can they do individually and collectively without a presidential finding or some other Right. I mean, if, it's,
1: if there's stuff that's existing findings and directions, they can do it, but... They are limited in just starting up new things to try new initiatives or new uh, particularly covert operations to try and deter Russia. As much as Mike Pompeo was trying to stress that there were things that they were doing that they felt the Russians knew about, I mean, obviously, he didn't want to talk about them open session. Um, I'm not entirely sure the closed session would have revealed that there were staggering new things that were doing well, against so, Russia.
2: So first of all, I don't think we know – how capacious the authorities that they were given in 2016 over the course of the year, as well as how capacious their standing authorities are to respond to and repel uh, ongoing cybersecurity threats. And so I I think we should assume that there's some uh, persistent ongoing authority, but exactly how expansive it is and how uh, how much it would support new initiatives, we don't know. Yeah.
1: All right. To be continued, we'll be talking more about this, I think.
0: Just get out and vote, people,
2: please.
1: <laughs> Let's move on to our object lessons. Um, ben, you want to go first?
2: Yeah. So, my object lesson this week is 57 pages of documents released by the Justice Department in response to my FOIA request. I have been on a quixotic campaign since the president's joint joint session of Congress address last year, not the State of the Union this year, but the sort of quasi-State of the Union from his first year in office, when he said that the vast majority of terrorism and terrorism-related convictions uh, since 9-11 involved people who were born overseas and came here from abroad. And he attributed this to Justice Department statistics. And I read that speech and I said, I not only don't believe the statement is true, but I don't believe there are any such Justice Department statistics. And I have been on a kind of quixotic campaign to figure out the history of that line in that speech ever since. So... This past week, the Justice Department released under FOIA a whole lot of uh, uh, some pages of uh, the early history of this, and I feel very vindicated by them because they show that, in fact, the National Security Division of the Justice Department uh, did not provide any data that could reasonably be said to support uh, that statement, but instead provided data that Um, they were very careful to say uh, uh, reflected only international terrorism and international terrorism-related cases, and that uh, so excluded purely domestic stuff, and also that they In fact, didn't keep data on where people uh, who committed these crimes were born or where they came from. They actually had to go to the FBI and ask the FBI to kind of manually put that data together. And when the FBI did it, they came back and said, you know, we did this, it was kind of quick and dirty, and it might not be accurate. and so that is the data set on which the President uh, made this very inflammatory statement to Congress. So the remaining question in this FOIA request is what the Attorney General's role in all of mm. this was. And I so my, my litigation will continue until we sort of figure out what the answer to that question. Or maybe a is.
1: second object. It's like a half object. Exactly. It's not, an object it's, to come. It's not the whole object lesson. Watch this object. <laughs> Mara, guys, I'm leaving you.
0: <gasps> what? Just temporarily. You pick now to tell us? this? <laughs> yeah. Well, I um, without Susan here, it's just not the same. I, I'm feeling like the testosterone levels are a little high, and <laughs> I need to take week. a break. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to be away. I'm going to Saudi Arabia. Oh. Um, because I that feel seems like h- hyper
1: rational yeah get a break from us so I'll go to Saudi Arabia yeah
0: because you know I want a place where women have more freedom
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so my object lesson this week is my abaya um, because despite the uh, what Dennis Ross would call the revolutionary transformation taking place in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia um, there are some dimensions of Saudi law and practice that have not yet been revolutionized. And one of them is that women in any public space have to be covered by a long black cloak. And so I, I have one. I actually have not one but two of these beauties. Wow. It's like um, one for evening wear? Well, one is a little more decorative. Oh, yeah. Okay. But actually one of them it's goes over your head and one of them opens in front. So All it's right. functional. Okay. Anyway. Uh, I'm going to be donning my abaya for a week in the kingdom, and uh, hopefully next time I go, I won't have to wear one, Uh, but for now, I still do. So, my abaya is my object, and if you're very, very lucky, I might put up on the website a picture of myself in In said abaya. abaya.
1: If I were to go with you to Saudi, could I also wear an abaya? <laughs> no, oh, <damn.
0: laughs> that would not. That would not go over no, well. That's
1: good, Not going to go over so well. No, it's a you joke. Know, <laughs> it's a little fun. You know,
0: liberalization in Saudi Arabia is going to have to go a good ways. I mean, in a way, but, they
1: look very comfortable. I mean, they seem very practical for hot weather.
0: Uh, yeah, but they're black. But that
1: and it's it's a really desert. hot. Yeah, but they're like flowy, and you know.
0: Men get to wear the white cotton flowy Yeah, that's thing. a little more practical. You guys have it so good.
1: Yeah. All
2: right. Well, maybe, all right. I'll, maybe I'll wear next mine week. Next week, it will be the all-male, the man panel edition <laughs> man of Rational Oh, d- It's a don't, stag do
0: smile so much when you say that. <laughs> it's going to be terrible. It's going to be so boring. We'll uh, have
1: male guests. Only male guests. <laughs> yeah. No girls allowed. G-U-R-L. It's going to be a clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but until then, you'll just have to wait a week. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page. It's out there. I know it's out there. Somewhere. Somewhere. There's a place for our show page. You can follow us on Twitter at R A T L Security. You can find us on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a reading and a review. It really helps us out. And we very much appreciate all of the, you know, mostly positive reviews that we've received. Yeah, they generally trend towards positive. So have there been
2: that. negative reviews? We should we should have a ceremonial reading of all read our the negative reviews. reviews. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Maybe we'll try that next week mm-hmm. when we do the man panel. Exactly. We should have one of the men read the bad reviews. Our music is performed this week by Bibi Netanyahu, who is without his usual band of backup singers, so is singing with a temporary group, the Interim Clarences.
2: Whoa. Because he used to head a group
1: called the Indictments. The Indictments. <laughs> this week, it's the Interim Clarences filling in on do <laughs> Sophia Yam would totally play for Bibi Netanyahu, whether in prison or not. For, I think she'd be more than happy for
0: pink champagne.
1: I yeah, think for pink would. champagne, she would do it as She's she does a for Scotch us drinker, every week.
2: Actually, as well, are we
1: all, yeah, as we all these days. I mean, you know, we are recording the afternoons again. On behalf of my good friends Benjamin Wittis, Mark Hoffman, Winitz, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye bye.